0: Welcome everyone. This is Kingdom in Context. I'm Sean, your host, and this is our series Milk and Meat. And what we're doing is a a special um, part of this series where we're going to look at the different doctrines of demons that we see the New Testament has to address as it tries to make new converts and explain the good news of gospel, the kingdom, and the resurrected Messiah to all the people in the region. We see Yeshua and all the other apostles, including Paul, have to address this Multiple different things that are being thrown at the converts, right, to confuse them, to distract them, to get them off their newfound faith in the Father and His Son, and to get them back into the ways of Babylon, to get them keep to continue um, the false religions that are out there. And so, we're going to address piece by piece, week by week, we're going to address some of these different doctrines that are in absolute contradiction to the Father's Word. Now, for many of you out there that are looking and saying, okay, well. What, what is the doctrine? Is that is that like a church you know, concept? Or, no, it just simply means teaching. So these are teachings that were trying to, to be propagated and pushed upon new believers that were contrary to what the law and the prophets had taught the whole time. So we're going to be looking at them. And tonight, as part one, we'll be looking at the claim that the day of the Lord had already happened. And we actually get to address this um, through Paul. That's weird. We actually get to address this through uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, as Paul wants to inform the folks what's going on, and he wants to help them understand clearly um, that this claim is not correct. So let's dig into the claim. Let's dig into the exegesis of the text so we can have a better understanding of why this claim possibly is being made. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 4. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be easily disconcerted or alarmed by any spirit or message or letter seeming to be from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has already come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for it will not come until the rebellion occurs and the men of lawlessness, the son of destruction, is revealed. He will oppose and exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship. So he will seat himself in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that I told you these things while I was still with you? And you know what is now restraining him so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now restrains, it will continue until he's taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will slay with the breath of his mouth and annihilate by the majesty of his arrival. The coming of the lawless one will be accompanied by the working of Satan with every kind of power, sign, and false wonder and with every wicked deception directed against those who are perishing, because they refuse the love of the truth that would have saved them. For this reason, God will send them a powerful delusion so that they may believe the lie, in order that judgment may come upon all who have disbelieved the truth and delighted in wickedness. Let's break down what we're reading here and why it's such a big deal for him to try to warn the believers in Thessalonica. Which is, I believe, in Macedonia at the time, northern Greece. He's trying to warn them, hey, concerning two things, the coming of the Lord and the gathering together to him. He says, I don't want you to be alarmed. I don't want you to be scared. If anyone tries to say that this event, this day of the Lord has already taken place, that's that message is not from Paul or from any of the other disciples. So let's take a quick look as we compare some of the and dissect. Some of the concepts mentioned in here that help us with qualifiers to understand why this event has not taken place in in Paul's day, and why we're going to talk about how it still hasn't taken place. There's lots of qualifiers we need to look at. So the first one is we want to look at the actual moment here. It says concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him. What is the coming of the Lord? This is a big deal because he he later qualifies that with the term the day of the Lord. So we are defining this term, the day of the Lord, right now in this passage. Joel chapter 3, 9 through 13. Proclaim this message among the nations. Prepare for war. Rouse the mighty men and let all the men of war advance and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords, your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm strong. Come quickly, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves. Bring down your mighty ones, O Lord. Let the nations be roused and advance to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit down to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the winepress is full. The wine vats are overflow because of their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will grow dark. The stars will no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and raise his voice from Jerusalem. Heaven and earth will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel, blessings for God's people. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my, my mountain, my holy mountain. Jerusalem will be holy. That means set apart, never again to be overrun by foreigners. And in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine. The hills will flow with milk. All the streams of Judah will run with water, and a spring will flow from the house of the Lord to water the valley of the Acacias. Egypt will become desolate, Edom a desert wasteland, because of the violence done to the people of Judah, in whose land they shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem will be inhabited from generation to generation. For I will avenge their blood, which I have not yet avenged. So this is Joel, the prophet, giving us some indication here about the day of the Lord. And he makes a lot of connectors here. He calls it that day and the day of the Lord specifically. What are some of the qualifiers that we see as it talks about two types of gatherings? We're going to discuss the two types of gatherings. One is what Yeshua referred to in Matthew 13 is the gathering of the tares. We also see this in Revelation 16. Those are the wicked, the enemy forces trying to fight Yeshua. We're going to cover this in 2nd Ezra 13 here in a minute as well. That's the gathering of the nations that try to battle against Yeshua at his return. And then there's another gathering that Paul's referencing here when he says our being gathered together to him. That's Yeshua, the coming of Lord Jesus Christ. The believers, the saints, the resurrected are the ones that are gathered to Yeshua. The nations are gathered on the ground to try to fight him as he descends. So there's two different gatherings in this specific area. We see in in 2 Corinthians 2, 1, Paul's referring to the gathering of the resurrection, right? This is what happens on the seventh trump on the last day, which is the day of the Lord when Yeshua returns. The seventh trumpet is what initiates the first resurrection and it what initiates Yeshua to descend through the firmament to come down and battle the wicked nations that fight against him. So therefore, Paul in his day, a lot of people that argue this particular, this particular, um, doctrine this particular teaching that is contrary to many of the prophets and we got lots more scripture to go to you guys a lot of people will say that in eighty seventy that people witnessed angels going throughout Jerusalem going over in the clouds of Jerusalem they witnessed angels going and, and doing things and that there was grand miracles. It's very possible it's very possible. But on that day the Messiah did not return to reign forever on the ground and judged all the wicked nations that have come to fight him. Emperor Titus, who invaded Jerusalem in 70 AD, went through Jerusalem and approximately, according to historians, slaughtered about one over one million people, and overtook the entire region of Judea and Samaria, which he was reasserting the fullness of control against those in. Jerusalem that they, that were trying to rebel against them. So a lot of people will say, well, that must be what Paul's mentioning right here, where he says the re- the rebellion must occur. And then the men of lawlessness, the son of destruction will be revealed. So they place Titus as the man of lawlessness after the provincial rebellion of Judea underneath the Roman authority in their empire in AD 70. Titus comes in with Roman forces, slaughters a million people, destroys Jerusalem and the temple. Many of the people that make this argument, We'll also try to say, when Rome came in in AD 70, they set up the ensign of Rome in the temple of God and sacrificed a pig in the temple of God before they burnt the temple. And they may have. This is actually, according to historians, this was a common thing that the Greeks and the Romans did when they overcame another nation. They would go to the temple of their gods of that new nation, and they would go in, and they would try to sacrifice not just a pig, but an ox and a sheep and the pig for their idea of purifying the temple and the land for Roman gods or Greek gods. This was a common practice, a common custom, supposedly, according to historians, for their conquering of nations. On that day, Titus, as emperor of Rome and the forces of the Roman legions, overcame the people in Judah, destroyed it completely, destroyed the people, dispersed whoever was left. There was no gathering of the saints in a resurrection on that day. There was no bringing down of the angels of God to fight against the forces of Titus. So many people like to use this term, the day of the Lord out of its context given to us through the prophets. And we're going to read more. They like to say the day of the Lord references a day of judgment and that's it. That the day of the Lord just was a day of judgment for Israel in AD 70. That's why people claim they saw angels in the sky overhead because it was God affirming the judgment being brought upon Israel. But they're missing a ton of qualifiers, a ton of descriptions. And the the biggest one being the resurrection. The second biggest one being the return of Yeshua, who never leaves once he returns. And I would say the third is the fact that all the nations did not gather together in Jerusalem to fight against Yeshua at his return. There's a big difference here with how the prophets define this term, the day of the Lord. And we're going to keep looking at it. Much of the people that make this argument, that the day of the Lord has already came, which is a 2,000-year-old argument, as we just read, as we just read from Second Thessalonians 2. So before AD 70, people were trying to say the same argument, that the day of the Lord has already come. And Paul's like, whoa, 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 where are you getting this stuff? And then he goes through the big qualifiers of how you know that the day of the Lord has not come in approximately AD 68, or AD 65 before Paul is beheaded in Rome and when he has a chance to write this letter to the Thessalonica. Guys, think about this for a minute. This same argument was being made before AD 70. So the events of AD 70 came and went. None of the qualifiers about the day of the Lord took place, but people still make the claim that was the day of the Lord. Must have been the day of the Lord. I I propose, and you'll see as we go through the rest of these scriptures, the only reason they make this argument is because they're unfamiliar with the law and the prophets, and all the scriptures given to us in the Old Testament about what the day of the Lord is. So let's keep looking at some of those verses. As we just read, we got the the nations that come to him. He's going to destroy them. The angels, the mighty ones, come down from heaven to destroy the forces that did not happen with the Romans. The Romans were victorious. The Romans did not lose during that time. We also see that the sun, moon, and stars did not grow dark in that day. There may have been cloud coverage because of fires in the area. Um, depends on what happened. But the there is no roaring of the Lord. There is no trembling of the earth and the heaven. This is a, a lot of huge qualifiers. And there is no establishment of Zion as holy mountain. And there is no promise or Jerusalem that will never over again be overrun by foreigners. Jerusalem in this may today right now is overrun by foreigners. And it was actually made desolate for a long, long time. None of these qualifiers fit, guys. The mountains currently, after this event, do not drip with sweet wine, and the hills do not flow with milk. That's an idiom, by the way, for a productive land full of agricultural and um, agrarian societies. We have a mixture of, for two over two thousand years, for many, I mean, I mean, until like literally, like, till the 1900s. It was a desert wasteland, almost. I should I should qualify. I think it was after six hundred A.D. until about approximately the nineteen hundreds, people stopped inhabiting Judea in mass, and there was large portions of it that were just completely uninhabited. Only in the last forty to sixty years has it been kind of revitalized, and they've you know put in irrigation and they've tried to build it up through the through the nation state of, of Israel that inhabits today. But it's it's not at all the qualifier of the day of the Lord that that Yeshua is not reigning from that place. There is no Zion there. There is no amazing peace that emanates and flows from this center point of Jerusalem. Egypt did not become a wasteland in AD 70. Edom did not become a wasteland in AD 70. Okay. And Jerusalem has not been inhabited forever, okay? So this is not that great day that the Lord promises in which he will avenge the blood of his people. Let's look at Zephaniah chapter one as he continues to explain what the day of the Lord is. Verse 14 of Zephaniah 1, the day, the great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord, then the cry of the mighty will be better. I'm going to stop real quick and just point out for everyone. Many of us who've heard this argument that the day of the Lord has already happened will also say, well, look, Sean, it says that it's about to happen in Second Thessalonians. Also in Revelation, he says all this stuff must soon take place. Not only have I tried to break down the Revelation chapter 1, the word that's used in the Greek there, that means when these things take place, it happens quickly. Just like Yeshua says in Matthew 24, the coming of the Man is like lightning striking from the east to the west. It happens quickly. It doesn't mean in a chronological time that it was going to soon take place. Zephaniah, we have Zephaniah, 600 years before Yeshua, making the same claim that the day of the Lord is near. And it's coming quickly, just like Paul said. Let's keep reading. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of horn blast, battle cry against the fortified cities and against the high corner towers. I will bring such distress on mankind that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. The whole earth will be consumed by the fire of his jealousy. Now, guys, this is a very interesting claim. A lot of people like to say, well, look, the whole earth. And they think that this goes into other doctrines from other denominations that claim that nobody will inhabit the earth for a thousand years, that everyone's living up in heaven. It's going to be a desolate place that was burned. The word haretz in the Hebrew can be used for earth and also for land in the context of where Yeshua returns according to all the prophets and what he does to establish the kingdom between the Euphrates and the Nile. That's the whole earth that he's referring to, the whole land that he's referring to. And in AD 70, when the Romans invaded Judea, they did not burn the whole earth from from the territory promised to, to be inhabited on the day of the Lord. They only burned structures within Jerusalem. Oh, and by the way, the Romans are not the righteous, vindictive arm of the Lord that comes and destroys anyone and and offers judgment. They're the enemy. They oppose God. We're going to get to the point here in in 2 Thessalonians where Paul is talking about how the Lord is going to inflict all this wrath on those who disbelieve, those who are against him. The wrath is not for the righteous. So all those righteous people that had become believers of Yeshua in AD 70 After the message of the resurrected Christ was spreading like wildfire, and they were still in Jerusalem and suffered the invasion of the Roman army, and what happened after that, those were righteous people suffering the consequences of war among the nations on the earth. This was not the righteous judgment of God being poured out. This was the inevitable covenant terms. That the nations, if you, if, Yahweh promised in Leviticus 26, Jeremy 4, if you stop doing my covenant and you reject my authority, the nations will start to invade you and overtake you and scatter you amongst the world. This is what happens in AD 70. It was not the day of wrath or the day of the Lord. Zephaniah three sixty-eight. I've cut off the nations, their corner towers are destroyed. I've made their streets deserted with no one to pass through. The nations or just Jerusalem? The nations. He cut off the nations. Their corner towers are destroyed. This is Isaiah chapter 30, verse 25. The day that all the towers fall from the nations. There's a great earthquake that happens at the coming of the Lord. All the cities of the nations are destroyed, not just Jerusalem. I have made their streets deserted with no one to pass through. Their cities are laid waste with no man, no inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me and accept correction. And then her dwelling place would not be cut off, despite all for which I punished her. But they rose early to corrupt all their deeds. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, until the day I rise to testify. For my decision is to gather nations. Here it is again. To assemble kings. Revelation 16. Here it is again. Revelation 18 and 19. All my burning anger. For all the earth will be consumed by the fire of my jealousy. This is what Joel 2 talks about, the army that comes through burning the land in front of it. Zephaniah goes on to say, For then I will restore pure lips to the peoples that I that all may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. Guys, we are still living amongst multiple people groups. We are still living amongst non-resurrected, non-Zion dwelling, multiple nations still fighting with each other with impure speech. They do not have pure lips to call upon the name of the Lord shoulder to shoulder with has one people. He goes on to say, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people, will bring me an offering. That didn't happen in AD 70. On that day, that's the day of the Lord, you will not be put to shame for any of the deeds by which you have transgressed against me. Hallelujah. This is the wonderful resurrection that gets, is made possible by Yeshua's priesthood. For then I will remove from among you those who rejoice in their pride. Oh, that's the wicked being destroyed and removed and judged. You will... Rome was the wicked. They were not destroyed, removed, and judged. They they were the victors in AD 70, guys. You will never again be haughty on my holy mountain, but I will leave within you a meek and humble people, and they will trust in the name of the Lord. Everyone in Jerusalem was scattered when Rome invaded Jerusalem in AD 70, guys. The temple, the city was burned. All the people were scattered. There was no remnant left within them that was humble people. The events of Roman Titus in AD 70 was not the prophesied day of the Lord. Verse 13, the remnant of Israel will no longer do wrong or speak lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, but they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. And if anyone wants to look at the last 2000 years and try to try to fit this verse into that pretext, I don't know what to say. If you think that, if you think there's utter safety and that people are now without sin, which this is referring to the the resurrected who now begin a new heart and their new eternal incorruptible bodies at the resurrection and are inheriting Zion to live inside the new Jerusalem in utter peace and safety that has never been observed, witnessed, or accomplished in the last 2000 years. Guys, what we're reviewing through the prophets and connecting these terms and these definitions to the day of the Lord is the message of our Messiah. It's called the, good news of the kingdom of God. It's the same good news or gospel that all the prophets spoke, that all the apostles and disciples of Yeshua, including Paul, they all taught the gospel of the kingdom of God. And the details from the prophets given to man by God that qualified what this day was going to look like, the transitionary moment in all of history, how the beginning of the thousand year reign of peace on earth would look like under the reign and the authority of the king of Israel, Yeshua of Nazareth. None of this is accomplished 2,000 years ago, and we are not existing at any point in any of this forever because the promise of Yeshua returning is that he never leaves. That's the point of the second coming. That's why it's called the great day of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 13, 6 through 10. Wail for the day of the Lord is near oh this is isaiah even before zephaniah he's also saying the day the lord is near interesting huh way before paul's day way before ad 70 it will come as destruction from the almighty therefore all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt Terror, pain, and anguish will seize them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another, their faces flushed with fear. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger, to make the earth a desolation and to destroy the sinners within it. The Roman legions that invaded, and the emperor of Rome, invading Judea, destroying the priesthood, destroying the temple, destroying destroying innocent people, over a million plus innocent people in Jerusalem the great slaughter of AD 70 by the Romans against the Israelites is not the sinners being destroyed. It was the wicked nations coming in and invading Jerusalem. That's all it was. That's all it was, guys. Happens all throughout history, all the time. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The rising sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light, just like we read in Zephaniah. Chapter 1 as well. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. In 8070, the world was not punished for its iniquity. They thrived. They congratulated themselves for conquering new territory and stomping out rebellion within their tributaries. Yahweh goes on to say, I will end the haughtiness of the arrogant. We still are living amongst the haughtiness of the arrogant and the kings of the earth and the pride of the ruthless today. Anyone, anyone that guys, this is why I'm, we're doing these shows to give you the tools and the resources when you face these arguments to say, look, hey, by the way, um, there's Zechariah, Isaiah, Zephaniah, immediately back up poll to explain to you that that this thought that the day of the Lord has already happened is not only a doctrine of demons because it's utterly contrary to the the central message of Yeshua and all the prophets, but all the qualifiers are it truly takes a blinded mind to claim that these qualifiers are somehow came to a reality in the last 2,000 years, or that we somehow exist within the reality of these qualifiers, because we do not. This, these qualifiers are speaking of peace on earth and the removal of the wicked kings of the earth that still rule the earth, that still force through oppression, slave trade, economic distraught, if, if absolute intentional manipulation of weather. All the practices of Babylon, the kings of the earth, implore those, they use those actively on their people today. They are the pride of the ruthless. They have not been removed from the earth. We do not have our righteous king in Zion ruling through peace. It goes on to say in verse 13, Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken from its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts on the day of his burning anger. Like a hunted gazelle, like a sheep without a shepherd, each will return to his own people, each will flee to his native land. Whoever's caught will be stabbed, and whoever's captured will die by the sword. Their infants will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be looted. Their wives will be ravished. Behold, I will stir up against them the Medes, who have no regard for silver and no desire for gold. Is that, was, is the Medes the, was that Rome? No, it's the Medes. It's the Persians. (laughs) Totally different people group. Their bows will dash young men to pieces. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. They will not look with pity on the children. And Babylon, the jewel of the kingdoms, the glory of the pride of the Chaldeans, will be overthrown like by God, like Sodom and Gomorrah. Guys, Rome was the empiric head of the empire of Babylon. They took it over from the Greeks. In AD 70, they destroyed Jerusalem, slaughtered a million people, dispersed the remnants throughout the world, throughout the provinces under their control. They, Rome, who controlled the empire of Babylon, was absolutely not overthrown on, in AD 70 as Sodom and Gomorrah was overthrown. I want you guys to think about this for a minute. These Think about these qualifiers for a minute. This, this argument that has been presented to us to say the day the Lord has already happened, and then they, some of me would go as far in, in the last year or so to try to say, oh, yeah, since Yeshua already showed up 2,000 years ago and he was already on the earth for a 1,000 years, and he had this built this beautiful Tario kingdom all throughout the earth, and then the devil was let back out, and now we're experiencing that. None of these qualifiers have happened yet, guys. That's a lie compounded upon a doctrine of demons. That is people who do not understand the promises to us of the covenant, of the return of the second coming of Christ, trying to fill in the holes with their limited understanding and and new theories. But the but the root of it is the same claim, the same anti-teaching of truth that Paul was facing in approximately AD 65, Having, facing it so much that he actually had to write to Thessalonica in his second letter to help them in their discipleship, to remind them, hey, but I don't know who's telling you guys this, but the day of the Lord hasn't already happened. here. There's going to be a ton of stuff that happens before the day of the Lord happens. And uh, by the way, it's the coming of the Lord. So he establishes peace on the earth forever. The kingdom of Zion is set up. The wicked are removed. Stars fall to the ground. Heaven and earth are shaken. All the world's punished. Sinners are punished. The righteous are resurrected. Guys, he goes through it. He's trying to explain to these people that this stuff, these qualifiers are not here. For you to fall into this trap of thinking the day of the Lord's already come, Shows just an utter unfamiliarity with the scriptures. That's all it boils down to. So let's keep going as we so we can get familiar with these scriptures. What does the Lord say to us about this? Paul goes on to say in 2 Thessalonians 1 through 4, where he's mentioning connecting the coming of Jesus with the gathering together to him and specifically our being together together to him. This is the day of resurrection. Okay, so let's look at how he, how the scriptures define this idea of being gathered together with Yeshua. Matthew 13, 36 through 40. Then Jesus dismissed the crowds and went into the house. He his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he replied, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed represents the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are collected and burned in the fire, so will it be at the end of the age. All right? There's, remember, there's the two gatherings we're talking about, right? The, the wheat and the tares. Verses 41 through 43, we see, he says, The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom every cause of sin and all who practice lawlessness. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and then the righteous will shine like the sun. In the kingdom of their father, he who has ears, let him hear. So now we have Yeshua comparing the idea of the wheat being taken to the barn. That's the resurrected, also with the dragnet that the angels come out and they gather all the nations before him, just like we read in Zephaniah 1, Isaiah 13. All the nations are gathered before him, the the righteous are resurrected. That's our being gathered to him. The nations, the evil, the ones that don't want him to return and rule upon the earth, the ones that want to continue in sin and don't repent of their sorceries, wickedness and evil deeds. They're going to gather together to try to fight him physically. OK, so our being gathered together with him is the great resurrection of the saints. And where does this take place, guys? This isn't just a lot of people will conflate their theory with the day the Lords already happened in AD 70 with you say, well, when, when did the first resurrection take place? And they'll go, oh, oh, oh it must have been Matthew 27 that's also very inaccurate to conflate 40 years earlier, a resurrection, a normal resurrection of people when Yeshua was resurrected versus the great resurrection of all the saints throughout time that's promised when that's the moment you're quickened into that same resurrection body that Yeshua received when he was resurrected. That happens specifically at the last trump on the day of the Lord. So let's read about that a little bit more. So Matthew 13, 47 through 50, I'm sorry, that's a, that's a copy. So Matthew 24, he expounds upon this gathering together of the peoples to him. Matthew 24, 29 through 31, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give us light. The stars will fall from the sky. We just read that from Zephaniah and Isaiah. So we have qualifiers to compare now. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. We read that in Zechariah. At that time, the sun, sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heaven all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Guys, all the tribes of the earth weren't even aware that Rome invaded Judea in eighty seventy. They didn't see Jesus coming on the clouds that day. Rome was taking care of business as Rome had been doing for hundreds of years and continued to do after that for hundreds of years. Rome subjugated its people through force and brut- brutality. People in China, people in Australia, people in southern South America, people, people all over the world were not aware of the day that Rome invaded Jerusalem in AD 70. Verse 31, he, that's Yeshua. Um, let, me, let me go back to verse 30. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. What? So the again, the claim of this idea that some people refer to as preterism Some people refer to it as a mixture of historicism and preterism. Some people just say, oh, the day of the Lord has already happened. The whole promise of the second coming, the day of the Lord, is that Yeshua comes with great power and glory with his fighting angels to remove the wicked kings of the earth and anyone who's aligned themselves to fight with them, and including Satan, the false prophet, and the beast. We're going to get into that also in just a minute. So, This verse right here clearly tells us the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. No matter what people claim they saw in AD 70 in the skies over Jerusalem, those things did not come out of the skies and set up a kingdom on earth and remove the Romans who were oppressing and destroying them. No, the Romans oppressed, destroyed, and were victorious that day. None of the qualifiers for preterism matches the actual prophecy of our Messiah. Verse 31, he will send out angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather his elect from the four winds. This is the great, what Paul refers to as our being gathered together to Yeshua. And from one end of the heavens to the other. So let's look at this term, the four winds, right? Because this is him expounding on what it means to be gathered together to Yeshua. Zechariah chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. This is actually in the Septuagint. It's pretty powerful. says, Ho, ho, flee from the land of the north, says the Lord. For I will gather you from the four winds of heaven, says the Lord. By the way, this is only in the Septuagint. Yeshua is quoting from the Septuagint. Even to Zion, deliver yourselves, you that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord Almighty, after the glory has he sent me to the nations that spoiled you. For he that touches you is as one that touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I bring my hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to them that serve them. And you shall know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and will dwell in the midst of you, says the Lord. And many nations shall flee for refuge to the Lord in that day. Two huge qualifiers, guys, on this day of the Lord, where he gathers his elect from the four winds. He did not come and dwell with us on the earth at that point, and He, many of the nations did not flee to him for refuge on that day. No, it's simply Rome came in and destroyed Jerusalem and slaughtered and murdered people. He goes on to say, and many nations shall flee for refuge to the Lord in that day, and they shall be for a people to him, and they shall dwell in the midst of you, and you shall know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. And the Lord shall inherit Judah, his portion in the Holy Land, and he will yet choose Jerusalem. Let all flesh fear before the Lord for he is risen up from his holy clouds. Yahweh did not inherit Judah, and AD 70. Let's go on to look at more qualifiers in this passage that Paul tries to help us understand this claim that it's false. It's an anti-teaching to the truth of the gospel, the kingdom of God. He goes on to say in verse three, let no one deceive you in any way for it will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction is revealed. He will oppose and exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship. So he will seat himself in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. He goes on to say in the lawlessness, the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will slay with the breath of his mouth and annihilate by the majesty of his arrival. So we have this qualifier that the day of the Lord can't happen until this lawless one reveal, is revealed. And when the lawless one is revealed, he's going to die by Yeshua showing up by the majesty of his rival and slaying him with the breath of his mouth. Titus lived I think 11 or 12 years after AD 70 and finally died in approximately AD 81, 82. So when, if, if people try to conflate what happened in the history of Jerusalem in AD 70 when the Romans invaded and conquered and Titus came in, went into the temple like they did at every other point when they invaded in other nations and they sacrificed to their gods, to the Roman gods, they sacrificed things inside of other people's temples as a show of, of domination Titus was not killed by Yeshua that day. He lived 11 to 12 more years. Guys, this is why these things get me so hot, because these are doctrines of devils. These are are ways to confuse you and sway you from your expectation of the glorious hope of the resurrection and the coming of the kingdom of God, which was the central message of your Messiah. To believe in some of these doctrines of demons or to entertain them to the point where, because you don't know the scriptures very well, is only going to cause you to doubt the words of your Messiah. And that gets me kind of hot. So the lawless one, when he's revealed, and we're going to talk about who that is, Jesus kills him at his coming. Jesus did not show up in AD 70 and kill Titus. And by the way, let's break this down a little bit. It says, and annihilates by the majesty of his coming. Let's define the term annihilate according to Paul, according to the Greek that he's using. Annihilate is katergio, to render inoperative or to abolish, to make idle, to make of no effect, to annul, to abolish, to bring to nothing, to discharge, to sever, to separate from. Guys, Rome continued in power after AD 70. Titus was not killed that day. He was not made inoperable. He was not rendered inoperative. They continued in power and authority over all the regions and lands. 2 Ezra 13, 21 through 26. Let's continue to define the idea of being rendered inoperable according to the scriptures. Verse 21 The interpretation of the vision shall I show you, and I will open unto you the thing that you have required. Whereas you have spoken of them that are left behind, this is the interpretation. He that shall endure the peril in that time has kept himself. They that be fallen into danger are such as have works and faith toward the Almighty. And what he's, I know it sounds weird wording, guys, but what he's talking about is the enemy that's trying to attack the Almighty. This is the nations that have assembled themselves to fight Yeshua's return. And Ezra is going to explain himself in the following verses. Verse 24, know this, therefore, that they which be left behind are more blessed than they that are dead. That's those who've been resurrected or spared in the, uh, survived the day of the Lord and all the worldwide cataclysm that it caused. Verse 25, this is the meaning of the vision. Whereas you saw a man coming up from the midst of the sea, the same as he whom God the highest has kept a great season, which by his own self shall deliver his creature and he shall order them that are left behind. This is the Matthew 25 sheep and goats judgment. Yeshua comes down to the earth to judge, just like we read about in Zephaniah chapter one and in chapter three. Second, thirteen twenty-seven 13, 27 to 31. And whereas you saw that out of his mouth there came a blast of wind and fire and storm, just like Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 5, to slay with the breath of his mouth. Verse 28, they he held neither the sword nor an instrument of war, but that the rushing in of him destroyed the whole multitude that came to seduce him. This is the interpretation. Behold, the days come when the Most High will begin to deliver them that are upon the earth, and he shall come to the astonishment of them that dwell on the earth. Was all the earth astonished? Were, were the people of the land astonished that the, the Most High delivered them that are upon the earth in eighty seventy? No, they were slaughtered and killed. The day of the Lord has not already happened. It did not happen before AD 70, and it has not happened after AD 70. It did not happen on the day and the year of AD 70. Verse 31, And one shall undertake to fight against one another, one city against one another, one place against one another, one people against one another, and one realm against one another. This absolutely didn't happen either 2,000 years ago. Verses 33 through 37, And when all the people hear his voice, every man shall in their own land leave the battle that they have won against one another. And an innumerable multitude shall be gathered together as you saw them, willing to come and to overcome him by fighting. To overcome who? Verse 35 But he shall stand upon the top of the mountain Zion, and Zion shall come. Oh, Zion shall come too. New Jerusalem descends up again the, the day of rain. This, the day of the Lord is synonymous with the descension of the New Jerusalem, a 1,500 square mile landmass coming down through the firmament to be established on the earth forever. That is not on the earth. Preterism is a lie. Verse 36, Zion shall come and shall be showed to all men, being prepared and built, like as you saw the hill graven without hands. And this, my son, shall rebuke the wicked inventions of those nations, plural nations. Rome did not get rebuked in 8070. They won the day. They destroyed and slaughtered millions of innocent people. This is the this is the qualifiers of the day of the Lord that we're reading here, folks. Yeshua returns with his kingdom, with angels. The wicked are removed. The resurrected saints are resurrected and inherited to get be able to live inside the New Jerusalem, the city of Zion. New Jerusalem is founded upon the earth and established forever. Yeshua judges all the peoples. It's Matthew twenty-five sheep and goats judgment. Sheep and goats judgment. All the nations are gathered to him for judgment. This did not happen two thousand years ago. And he shall lay before them their evil thoughts and the torments wherewith they shall begin to be tormented, which are like unto a flame, and he shall destroy them without labor by the law, which is like unto me. Like I've tried to share in the past, guys, he judges everyone according to the law of God. This is why he's the high priest of the law of God, the king of Israel and the covenant of law of God. Verse 39, and whereas you saw that he gathered another peaceable multitude unto him. The nations come to him to fight him. The remnants are destroyed and judged. The remnants are, are brought to him to be judged after he destroys the nations that try to fight him. But then there's a different peaceful multitude that's gathered unto him. Those are the ones who are now his co heirs in Zion, the resurrected saints. Only happens on that last great Trump when he gathers them f- from the four winds. On this day, the nations come to him, he destroys them, they are made inoperable. The the wicked kings of the earth and their armies are still operating on the earth today. The day of the Lord did not happen 2,000 years ago. Revelation 19, 19 through 21. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies assembled to wage war against the one seated on the horse and against his army. But the beast was captured along with the false prophet who on its behalf had performed signs deceiving those who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Both the beast and the false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Guys, Titus was not thrown into the, the lake of fire. He lived another 11 or 12 years. The rest were killed with the sword that proceeded from the mouth of the one seated on the horse. All the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Let's continue to go to more qualifiers in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, 5-9. The coming of the lawless one will be accompanied by the working of Satan with every kind of power, sign, and false wonder. Let's start defining who accomplishes these signs and false wonders as Scripture tells us. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 5-9, compared to Revelation 13, 13-15, the second beast performed great signs to cause even fire from heaven to come down to the earth in the presence of the people. Guys, AD 70, Titus and whatever general that was with him, whatever assistant commander that he had, Titus was not the beast and whatever underlings under, under Titus were not the false prophet, the second beast to perform lying signs and wonders in the land of Israel in AD 70. All these qualifiers matter, folks. These absolutely matter. 14. Because of the signs it was given to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image to the beast that had been wounded by the sword and yet had lived. The second beast was permitted to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship it to be killed. That definitely didn't happen in AD 70. Many many nations around the world were not under Rome's thumb and were not worshiping Titus or his image. Revelation 1 through two. Then I saw a beast with 10 horns and seven heads rising out of the sea. This is going to define first the beast whom the second beast did line signs and wonders on behalf of. There were 10 royal crowns on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. The beast I saw was like a leopard in the feet of a bear in the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. So, guys, if you're interested, we've done a great uh, long breakdown on my secondary channel kingdom cast, I have an investigating Babylon series and I actually go through revelation. I'm still going through it. And, but I've already gone through these pieces of information to identify throughout all of scripture, who the first beast is in revelation 13 and who the second beast is in revelation 13, the one who actually performs the signs and false wonders under the authority of the first beast and under the authority of Satan. This is the whole point. And if you guys want to go watch me break that down for you, so that you can understand who the lawless one is and who's the one that comes with him working in the power of Satan to accomplish false lying signs and wonders on behalf of the lawless one, go check out part 16 of our Investigating Babylon series called Mark of the Beast. And I think you'll have a great, uh, you'll have hopefully a better understanding a breakdown historically and scripturally of who the first second beast is. Paul goes on to say in verses 10 through 12 and with every wicked deception directed against those who are perishing not against the innocent people in Jerusalem in AD 70 not against the believers in that day that were still in Jerusalem these wicked deceptions these false line signs and wonders are to deceive the wicked Those who reject Christ, his authority, and his perfect behavior. Those who reject the law of God and the instruction of wisdom that it gives us in life. Those who reject the promise of eternal resurrection and the coming kingdom of Zion. The wicked are the ones to whom this wicked deceptions are directed against. The wicked, the rebellious, the unrepentant are those who reject God and reject his son. They're considered the ones perishing. All the innocent people that are slaughtered in AD 70... Do not fit this qualifier as Rome came in and destroyed them. It says those who are perishing because they refuse the love of the truth that would have saved them. So in this qualifier, those who are perishing, who would be subjected to this deception, would have been Rome. It would have been wicked Titus serving false gods. Paul goes and finishes with For this reason, God will send them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie, in order that judgment may come upon all who have disbelieved the truth and delighted in wickedness. Again, all the wrath of the Lord on the day of the Lord is directed towards the wicked. The righteous are saved. That's the whole point. The righteous are spared the wrath of the Lamb. Those who hate the father and the son and reject their authority, reject their extension and offer for eternal life. They reject their proclamation to all the world to live by a standard of righteous behavior that creates goodness on the earth and love the wicked of the earth, reject all that. They delight in wickedness. They delight in their own pleasure. They're going to try to fight him when he returns. He's going to destroy them. All these qualifiers I've given you tonight, guys should hopefully thoroughly dispel any leanings toward Historicism, preterism, day of the Lord's already come, any of that type of teaching. 100%, 100% decision for me that the claim that the day of the Lord has already happened is an absolute doctrine of demons. So we don't condemn people who are testing it. We don't condemn people who are looking into it. We don't condemn people who may be deceived by it right now. Lovingly show them the scriptures that we've provided for you tonight. If you want to use this as a resource to spur that loving, patient conversation with them, to let them know, hey, yeah, I I looked into that too, but here's all these different reasons why that doesn't work. Here are all these different scriptures that define for us what the day of the Lord is by literal name, what the gathering together of Yeshua looks like what the, the, the coming of the wicked one looks like, Who the, who's the one that does the false line sign and wonders under the authority of Satan, how they're destroyed at the, at the arrival of his majesty. I just want to uh, encourage you guys that this is, this is a very, very important um, topic now more than ever. Clearly, as we've seen, even 2,000 years ago, in approximately AD 60 to AD 65, it's hard to say exactly when the Second Thessalonians is written. But before Paul was killed by the Romans, before he was beheaded, he was having to address this same false teaching. So, yes, guys, I know that there's, there, we know of churches out there, denominations that teach this, that believe this, that, te- that, that uh, dip their toe in this kind of terminology and language. And yes, and many of these people will be ordained by a seminary, by a church, and even call themselves a pastor with a Ph.D. That does not mean that they understand the gospel, the kingdom of God, that Yeshua and all the prophets preach. That does not mean they have truly studied the Old Testament. It doesn't mean, if they have studied the Old Testament, that they take the words for what they say. One of the, one of the most egregious interpretations of exegesis, which truly is not exegesis, that we see from this claim that the day of the Lord has already happened and the people that promote it is they do not take the words for what they say. Like I did tonight, you saw me define certain things. They reinterpret outside of scriptural example. They reinterpret the definitions of words to suit their theory. This is why they will with great conviction, try to tell you that, Oh, Jesus already showed up in 87 and you're like, Oh, if that's the case, then we have no hope left. If this is the, if the earth is now the result of all the wickedness, the murder, the trafficking, the the destruction of the people in the land, if this is the reign of Christ on the earth, then our Bible is pointless. Yeshua has not begun to reign on the earth until he shows up and removes the wicked from the earth and establishes peace because he's here and the nations will flee to him for refuge. Paul repeats what Ezra spoke. In Romans 15. The nations will put their trust and hope in Yeshua. It's because he shows up. He's here. They can walk up to the city where he is and look at him. So thank you guys for your patience. Um, I think actually someone just dropped a super chat earlier. We'll take a few questions before we end. And oh yeah, Chase, I appreciate you, brother. Thanks for the super chat. You're saying brother, Sean, at the end of your teaching, we have a brother needs you. Okay. Yeah. Um, Well, he, some of this, some of this, guys, we want to, um, you know, sometimes people have not heard good rebuttals to bad teachings. So they mean to let it marinate within them for a while. You know what I'm saying? They need to maybe go back and study and take these verses that I've taken and these chapters that they're that they're pulled from and to read and study and take their time with it. But let's see if there's any questions that we can look at. Um, if you do have a question, put it in all capitalizations. Uh, Minds M7's asking, why do some Christians reject the rapture? Well, the word rapture is harpazo, And it depends again how you're defining that term. That word means to be snatched away, to be catched away. That is the great gathering from the four winds that are just described from Old and New Testament passages. The harpazo is not a some people define the word rapture as this secret catching away that happens either seven or seven years or three and a half years before the second coming of Meshua. Um, that's not in scripture. It's the last trumpet, as Paul tells us, First Corinthians 15, 49 through 51, and First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. It is the trump of the Lord. It's Revelation 11, seventh trumpet, that's what blows. That's the great trump that Yeshua is referencing in Matthew 24, 29, and 30, that the angels blow the trump to gather the elect from the four winds of the earth. So this is from everywhere they've been and scattered, they're resurrected, and they're brought to him on the day he returns. This is also... Um, Specifically referenced in Isaiah 26, 19-21, talking about those who are resurrected and then stored away in the New Jerusalem, in their rooms prepared for them so that they are away from the wrath of the Lord, the indignation of the Lord that is being poured out on the nations. Um, Same story front to back in the Bible. The day that the Messiah returns the second time and creates peace on the earth, it's a day that will never go away, and it's a day that is initiated by, it's started by the resurrection of the saints, not before or after. It's the day of the Lord. There is not a pre-tribulation rapture. There's a day of the Lord, seventh trumpet rapture. That is the scriptures commonly referred to as the first resurrection. So hopefully that's a good, helpful for you, helpful answer for you. Um, Yeah, you're welcome, Tyler. Hopefully it was, uh, it was, you know, something you can use as a resource going forward and help help you engage this conversation with others. Okay, looking for. I thought I saw another couple of questions up here. A lot of people are asking about uh, other types of false teachings, guys. That's the point of this, you know, this mini series within our Milk and Meat um, broadcast is that we're going to get to them all. Just you know, week by week, we're going to go through them so you can have an actual resource and be like, oh yeah, he he addressed uh, dispensationalism or covenant theology or supersessionism, or he addressed um, the idea that the Torah's gone away, you know, or like he addressed these things. And we're going to be doing it as I exegete it from the New Testament books, uh, as our Messiah and the apostles had to address it as well. <laughs> Prodigal son, yes, I have. I've read the Testament of Abraham. It's uh, it's it's interesting, but there's some things that raise an eyebrow within it. Hey, thank you, Chicklet. I appreciate the super sticker. That's awesome. Thank you so much. And also, um, yeah, it looks like Raina. Granddad right dropped one too. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. Okay. Infinite split to 456 is asking What year did the destruction of Edom occur that is described in Isaiah 34? I. I'd have to go look, well, Isaiah 34, uh, is there's a lot of references to the day of the Lord in there. Um, Edom is a part of, um, you just have to, depends on the, the text. We can try to go look at it real quick, but do you have a specific text you're asking about? Because Isaiah 34 is a um, talking about a lot of different things in there. You guys remember that these verses are not in the original Hebrew. So it talks about judgment of the nations to begin with, talking about the peoples, the nations, uh, the Lord's furious with them. He's going to send his armies upon them. This is where the heavens are rolled back like a scroll in verse four. Um, They're dissolved and the stars fall to the earth. And then he talks about his sword being drunk in the heavens. Actually, I'm going to put this on screen so others can read along with us. So remember that the people of the earth many times are referred to by the Father from their original lands and people groups. So currently, from what I understand, if Esau's descendants who intermarried with the Ishmaelites would be a collection of um, Middle Eastern peoples that would encompass people from Jordan to Saudi Arabia and possibly some Iraqis, which just depends on interbreeding with different tribes and clans. Um, But let me put this on screen real quick. Okay, so here in verse five, after he just mentioned all the nations, receiving judgment from him on the day that he returns the day that the scroll the the heavens rolled up like a scroll just like yeshua tells us matthew 24 29 so there's your qualifiers to connect what is this this is a day that only happens once there's only one day in all of history and all of creation that he rolls the heavens back like a scroll and comes down through them so in the light of that context we see that edom is also going to after the lord has his drunk drunkets fill in the heavens then it will come down upon edom upon the people i've devoted to destruction The sword of the Lord is bathed in blood, it drips with fat. So he goes on, even from Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. And yes, why would this matter? Because you're going to have a lot of nations that disregard Yeshua, that align with the beast coming from all the territory of the Middle East around Israel to invade it. This is uh, actually it tells you in other prophecies that Jerusalem will be invaded during this time and when he actually shows up. So there's a lot going on there. Um, But if we go on, he continues to talk about some of the horrific descriptions of what's going to happen during Edom and the people group that it encompasses during that time. The day of the Lord is a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. This is referring to the cause of Zion. It means that the land is cleared and burned as we see in Joel 3 and Zephaniah so that he can set his house down. This is the point of Zion returning. Um, and then of course, Edom will have some serious ecological consequences as a result of this. And um, it's very interesting, very interesting. So the Lord will stretch out a, a plumb line of destruction over Edom, and not just Edom, but He talks about other places, other peoples in that immediate region that have um, either betrayed Israel, that fought against Israel, that persecuted Israel. They're all going to receive judgment on the day of the Lord. Like I read earlier, I think it was from uh, Zechariah six. He comes to do to to take recompense for the and to avenge His people, which He had not yet avenged. And so, yeah. This is a a unique concept here where all these surrounding areas outside of where the new Jerusalem is going to sit down is going to just be a wasteland destroyed completely um, so that people will not possess it forever and ever from generation to generation. So long story short to your answer, um, that's going to be happening in all the aftermath or I should say in all the collective destruction and collateral destruction that's happening in the day of the Lord when he returns and all the angels go throughout the land to clear it out. Uh, Chicklets asking to explain Moses and Elijah at the Mount of Transfiguration. That was a vision that Jesus was seeing. Um, so, and and also Peter and I believe Peter and John also saw it as well. So, uh, that's a, a vision. Just like many people have seen visions, prophets have seen visions throughout the time of of future events. It's a it's a vision of the resurrected Messiah with Elijah and Moses. It's a vision. Um, oh, thank you, Stellar J. Stellar J. Atkins. I appreciate you, brother. Yeah, hopefully these are something you can use. Yes, infinite. Yes, multiple events I just read about, the different nations being addressed, as well as Edom's destruction, as well as the firm being rolled back. So yes, there's multiple events being described in Isaiah 34. The context of it overall is the day of the Lord, and all the qualifiers help us with that. This is why one of the first things that I, um, one of the first series that I did on my channel like two and a half years ago was with our brother Ken Heidebrecht. Actually, it wasn't on my channel. I'll take that back. It was on uh, Parable of the Vineyard. Um, They asked us to come on and do a a special series on their channel. And it was all about the day of the Lord. It was all about the qualifiers for the day of the Lord. So we did, we ended up doing, um, I think 20 episodes total. So 20 different episodes where we talk about all the different qualifiers, each with a new episode of the day of the Lord. The day, the second coming of Yeshua is prophesied uh, like seven to eight times more than the first coming. Like there's a ton and ton of prophecy about the events and details surrounding the day of the Lord and all the different things that happen with it. So we did an entire series breakdown on that. I think you can actually find that series now, since it's no longer my channel. uh, You can find that series now on our brother West blaze music's channel, messenger of the most high. Um, I believe that's yeah. Messenger of the most high. So if you click that into YouTube and go to his playlist, you'll be able to see the road to rescue playlist where he has re uploaded all those videos that Ken and I did. Um, and each video is a different facet of the day of the Lord and all the details that go into it. So infinity, I encourage your brother or sister. If you have not studied all those details from the old Testament, um, that will be a great series for you to latch onto and kind of look at. Um, otherwise we do talk about this on my channel and and great to tell just sprinkled into a lot of videos, as opposed to a specific playlist like the road to rescue playlist that you can go and watch piece by piece and breakdown of all the descriptors of the day of the Lord, because it goes into not just the basic descriptors, but the why and the theology and the, you know, the consequence and all that. So we have good discussion on it and break it down. So hopefully it'll help you. Uh, LJ Angela, thank you, brother. I appreciate the super sticker. That's really awesome of you. Thank you so much. Infinity, you can disagree with me all you want. It's up to you. It's up to you. I would just lovingly suggest the reason why you so vehemently disagree with me is because you're unfamiliar with the passages and what they're talking about. So I would, you know, again, 500... (laughs) 500 AD, um, 500 BC destruction of Edom, there was no heavens rolling open like a scroll. You see what I'm saying? Just little little things like that. There was no eternal consequence of that land not being inhabited forever from generation to generation. Literally, the people of Jordan and Saudi Arabia are there today. See what I'm saying? So there's there's some There's some problems with not taking the words for what they say or just being unfamiliar with what the words say. So this is, like I said at the very beginning, what people argue so greatly against the interpretation of some of these passages is because of certain hermeneutic principles either not being applied or being applied in very subjective ways. So when we read Isaiah 34 and we see these descriptions about a destruction that lasts forever, about its streams and its waterways acting as tar pits because of the amazing amount of destruction that has happened in that land. We've never seen that throughout history, and it's definitely not present to be observed today. So those are scriptures and qualifiers is what we have to put into our till of, of processing what is being told to us in the text. This is called reading comprehension. So then this is where we can look at these things and say, okay, okay, so I see that there is a, there's some definitive words being spoken in a passage, And it's talking about a nation that suffered multiple rounds of destruction throughout history. So do those qualifiers meet what we can see and observe from the the multiple rounds of destruction of that people group or that nation as documented in history to us today? And when they don't, we realize that the qualifiers given to us have other qualifiers built into that statement, talking about other things only happening on the day that Yeshua returns through the sky. So this is why we don't like to, you've never, I, I tried to organize a, a conversation about preterism, which is the general uh, false doctrine that I tried to address tonight, but it just, it just hasn't happened yet. There's multiple people I was trying to have involved in it. It just really hasn't happened yet. But um, this is my stance on preterism as we here emphatically teach and explain the gospel, the kingdom of God to those who will listen. So that's, uh, that's why most of the people that believe in, in the idea of a preteristic idea ignore the definitions of the terms used in these descriptions and they they just they run with their own concepts. So that's that's unfortunate. That's why you don't see me do a lot of debates on this, because it it feels utterly pointless, to be honest with you. To talk with someone who will read the same text and ignore the definitions of the words with me. This is like when you see me do trinity trinity discussions, but at least with people that try to just support and defend the trinity. I can see the verses that caused them to go astray. So I give them a measure of grace, if you will, right? I can see that, all right, it's worded pretty weird, but let's look up the definition of the word and it helps us out. And it's at that point, they can either accept the definition of the word or not and get some clarity or not, but, you know, just depends on the personality. But with other types of false doctrines, it's very subjective on why people believe it. And the very basic principle of looking up the definition of a word or term as explained by other writers in Scripture, very often those people refuse to do that hermeneutic due diligence. And they want to believe something, therefore they continue to subjectively interpret it, regardless of the scriptural exegesis of it. So this is where I don't do a lot of debates with that that type of mentality, because Doesn't matter what you say. They're almost like an atheist where they don't care about the definition of the word. They don't really care what the context of the passage is. They want to believe what they want to believe. So you can only show them the truth and let them deal with it and marinate as they will. All right. Okay, guys. Uh, just um, uh, you know, I can't. It's interesting. People are claiming they're blocked, but yet I'm seeing their their pass. I'm seeing their statements, so it's interesting. Um, so guys, you, you're welcome to disagree, right? Everyone's going to have disagreements on different things in scripture or not everyone, but a lot of people come to disagreements on, on how they want to read scripture. I just try to address the hermeneutic approach there and why certain people disagree in certain ways. If you disagree with what I'm saying tonight, that's fine. You, you're welcome to, no one's requiring you to agree with me to watch this, right? Just keep in mind, if you start getting to the point where you're ascribing salvation to your interpretation in that disagreement, that's when you you step into the realm of theological intimidation or trolling, imposing your interpretive definition onto somebody, which creates contention, strife, and argumentation. And that's when the mods step in and have to silence you from causing a stir in the live chat. Hope you understand how that works. Just as if we were all in a room talking together and we were sitting in a circle studying the Bible. And I shared the verses I did tonight and why I believe that this idea of historicism or preterism or people claiming the day of the Lord has already happened is an absolute false teaching. That's opposite of the gospel of the kingdom of God and literally comes as a qualified doctrine of demons and that we should not believe it. And instead we should believe all these passages I gave us tonight. And then at that point, you stood up across the room and said, I disagree with you and you're going to hell as a result of it. With, no scripture to back it up with no peaceful dialogue or rebut, you would be causing a stir unwisely and unlovingly. So they would not appreciate you doing that, right? Neither do we appreciate people doing that in the live chat while we have a a show. So the moderators have been chosen to help squash that type of contention. Just don't be that type of contention. That's the easiest way to solve all that. Um, I need new markers. I, I really want to encourage you to go back and watch the entire video. Okay. Because what the idea of Tartaria has been doing is morphing itself on the back of preterism. So they've claimed that Yeshua has already shown up, lived a thousand years, Satan was locked up for that thousand years, and The earth flourished with advanced tech and ancient, ancient cities. And then Satan was let back out again. And then where'd Yeshua go? They don't have an answer for that. And then Satan's back out again to deceive the nations. And here we are today. The the thing that you're talking about is built upon preterism. It's built upon everything I just tried to debunk with the scriptures tonight. So I want to, that means if you debunk the foundation of which the Tartaria theory is built upon, then that means the Tartaria theory is bunk as well. So this is why I would just encourage you to go check out the the previous 50 minutes of this broadcast so that you can see there is no foundation for that theory. Yeshua has not been locked up yet at any point in history. Yeshua Yeshua has not returned yet at any point in the last 2,000 years, and Satan was not locked up at any point in the last 2,000 years. We have not reached the eschatology of the day of the Lord yet. So that's what I tried to show tonight. Take your time with it. Go watch the previous part of this broadcast. Guys, I gotta I gotta go for tonight I really appreciate everybody asking some awesome questions and being here in the chat and um, I just want to appreciate all of you guys yeah firmament liquor it should be make the gospel of the kingdom great again that's what it should read because that's what yeshua preached all right guys I appreciate you thank you so much and uh we will pick this uh, series back up here Um I got to travel next week, maybe two weeks from now. Okay. you have a great night.